I'll be so glad when the sun go down. When the sun go down, I'll be so glad when the sun go down. When the sun go I'm Michael Klein, and this is Radio Free Earth. What a beautiful sound. Ed Lewis and Prisoners singing the haunting work song, I'd Be So Glad When the Sun Goes Down, recorded by Alan Lomax on the notorious Parchment Farm. As always, you'll hear more after I close out this, my second essay in the series titled, White Skin, Dark Truth, Negroes for Sale. I hope that my first essay provided an unambiguous overview of the dark truth about where we all come from. Not a cancel culture move. This is just who we are. It is our American heritage. There's no running away. We need to know our own history and learn from it. We are a wonderful people with great promise. And I'm optimistic that we can still aspire to live up to the lofty words of Thomas Jefferson in belief and in practice that all men are created equal. Therein, racism has no place. I like Nelson Mandela's concept of truth and reconciliation as South Africa freed itself of an awful era of apartheid. They have a long way to go, but in Mandela's spirit, we also must face the truth of our history, honestly struggle to reconcile, throw off the deep emotional shackles that affect all of us, and strive to one day genuinely become the United States of America. Today I'm going to share the words of Parul Segal, writing for the New York Times in a review of the book To Make Their Own Way in the World, published by Harvard's Peabody Museum Press and named by the New York Times as one of the best books of 2023. Yes, we are going back to Harvard. And it is a great book, certainly one of the most important books ever, chronicling the history of slavery in America, and one that I applaud loudly. But it is carrying what at best is that misleading title, to make their own way in the world. At worst, it was a way to obfuscate racist Harvard's own responsibility for the Agassiz photos, those 15 now infamous daguerreotypes. Seagal, too, found this title a bit peculiar, noting the buried irony of it. I think there was more to it than that. The title, To Make Their Own Way in the World, was lifted from Frederick Douglass's writing titled Lecture on Pictures, penned in 1861. 
Born into slavery in 1818 on the Home Hill Farm in Talbot County, Maryland, Douglas's story as a slave, separated from his parents, often leased out as a laborer, but defying the anti-literacy laws he learned to read, learned a trade valued in the shipyards of the North, and escaped in 1838. A story so well documented and best told in his own speeches and writings. His words are powerful when read in print or heard through the voices of others. What a shame that we can't hear them from that remarkable and unbreakable man himself, who in time became the great American abolitionist we all admire. And did Douglas ever love photos? Pictures, as he called them including daguerreotypes, and he sat for them often because he wanted to be photographed voluntarily, if sometimes sternly, and always quite elegantly attired, commanding respect by his very countenance. So, of course, he wanted those pictures to make their own way in the world, to speak for themselves, but in his quoted lecture, he was not speaking of those obscene and coerced daguerreotypes directed by Harvard's Agassiz. Douglas never even saw them, and had he, he would have expressed outrage. I can just imagine his thunder. Please let me make my point by quoting Frederick Douglas verbatim from his Lecture on Pictures again penned in 1861, the year the Civil War started. Context here is everything. Douglas writes, Pictures, like songs, should be left to make their own way in the world. All they can reasonably ask of us is that we place them on the wall, in the best light, and for the rest, allow them to speak for themselves. Beautiful and telling, a harbinger of what's to come here later today, that analogy between the power of pictures and songs. This great book does share so many pictures that do indeed speak for themselves, but it does not take much imagination to know that Frederick Douglass would never suggest placing Agassiz's racist insult to the coerced and naked Papa Renty on any wall, much less put Papa Renty's genitals in the best light. It is an outrageous misuse of Frederick Douglass's name and his words. As you'll note, for this series I chose to use only a headshot of Papa Renty from the original daguerreotype, because his brave face says it all. That said, I'll readily admit that something strange and wonderful does happen when those salacious daguerreotypes are seen today, because they triumph over Harvard and Agassiz's racist intent in Papa Renty, Delia, and the others 
their character shows through, leaving Agassiz implicating only himself. Now about that preposterous subtitle, The Enduring Legacy of the Zeely Daguerreotypes. Again, Harvard attempts to avoid responsibility for the critical dark truth. Zeely was just the photographer, literally commissioned as a daguerreotypist by Agassiz, utilizing Zeely's studio that was the center of his real and otherwise modest photographic practice doing local portraiture in Columbia, South Carolina. Zeely had nothing to do with the racist Agassiz's zoological machinations. He was but a highly competent daguerreotypist, one of the first to produce color daguerreotypes, and that convenient sky-lit studio was taken over by Harvard's Agassiz, his team of academics, and their slave specimens. After what must have been quite a shocking experience with the arrogant and demanding Harvard big shots, Agassiz and Entourage, Zeely returned to his practice of local portraiture, generating business by offering walk-in portraits for one dollar and often participating in state fairs and professional competition. Joseph T. Zeely died in 1893, never knowing that those 15 daguerreotypes taken under Agassiz's strict direction were rediscovered by Harvard's Peabody 126 years later and sadly would still become his primary legacy. Zeely is not the seminal figure here and I suspect that the use of his name and that subtitle, rather than that of the totally responsible Harvard zoologist Agassiz and the racist Harvard that owns those daguerreotypes to this day, was a politically motivated move. As with the lifting of Frederick Douglass's quote for the title itself, likely hotly debated, by the Harvard Corporation that owns Harvard University and Harvard's Peabody Press, a diversionary act by lawyers trying to soft-pedal Harvard's singular responsibility in an attempt to salvage the broken Harvard brand and not under the control of the book's editors, who I so respect and respect I do. To make their own way in the world is a massive 500 pages of otherwise great scholarship that digs deeply into slavery, with a roadmap built only minimally on the real lives behind those 15 daguerreotypes that sit up front in the book almost like a calling card. Still, the many writers offer a sweeping and complex portrait of slavery in these United States, and it does contain a huge and telling collection of photos that do support that history accurately, and that includes 
other photos of slaves totally naked. Photos taken by Augusto Stahl, Walter Honeywell, Edward Thiessen, all well-known photographers of the era. Still disturbing, humiliating, not fun to see, but they all avoid the insulting zoological drama of those taken by Zeely, as directed by Harvard professor Louis Agassiz. Responsibility for those 15 obscene daguerreotypes lies squarely with the Harvard that empowered the unbowed racism and pseudoscience of their own celebrated agassiz. And celebrated he was. A serious contemporary of Charles Darwin, caught by his own blind spot, as they called it, on the wrong side of the real origin of the species. Unrepentant, Agassiz continued preaching racist polygenism at Harvard, where he later founded Harvard's Museum of Comparative Zoology and served as its director until his death in 1873. In her review of the book, Parul Segal references heavily two other great works where those daguerreotypes were foundational and properly focused on Harvard's agassiz. Molly Rogers' stunning book, Delia's Tears, mixing slave history with fictional accounts of the times, natural law versus oppression, offering a rich and very personal texture. I love this book and capture Delia's tears she does. Her cover photo of Delia's face inspiring my own decision to do the same with my use of Papa Renti's daguerreotype-derived image. Rogers was later retained by Harvard's Peabody Press as an editor of To Make Their Own Way in the World, the title which I still find so politically contrived and deceptive. And there is the work of Carrie Mae Weems, who duplicated the images, her tears being expressed, washed literally in red for her New York Museum of Modern Art exhibition titled, From Here I Saw What Happened and I Cried. Harvard threatened her with a lawsuit. There are a lot of lawyers at Harvard, but she welcomed the lawsuit and hoped for a continuing conversation about the daguerreotypes. Harvard promptly acquired her work. All along, Weems had wanted to continue the conversation, and later she too was retained as a contributor to this very book where she accomplished just that. I find her art and her thoughts beautiful and compelling. Carrie Mae Weems, Molly Rogers, and all associated with the book to make their own way in the world are in their own way inviting all of us to continue this conversation. So I am. Focused on the main event, 
Harvard's racist Agassiz, not Zeely. Brilliantly ferocious in her outrage, I'll let Parul Segal close this door for now. She writes, Agassiz wanted images of barbarity, and he got them, implicating only himself. He had hand-selected his subjects in South Carolina, seeking types, seeking specimens, as he put it. But each daguerreotype reveals an individual, deeply dignified and expressive, their hurt, contempt, fatigue, and utter refusal are unequivocal. Thank you, Parole. Another summarily dark truth and a conversation that is anything but over. Before I leave Harvard today, it seems critical that I comment on the fact that in just the few days since publishing my first essay in this series, wherein I lauded the appointment of the first black president in racist Harvard's history, 386 years in the making, Harvard Corporation's board forced Dr. Claudine Gay's resignation. She lasted six months, the shortest term ever for a Harvard president, something we'll talk about in great detail in the future. For now, let me take you back to where this broadcast began with the recording of Ed Lewis and Prisoners. Ed as the caller in the call-and-answer structure of a very old slave work song, in this case recorded by folklorist Alan Lomax visiting black prisoners on the notorious Archmont Farm in Mississippi well after the abolition of slavery. But the prisoners were still living lives as incarcerated slaves. And slaves they were. Legislation passed by the state of Mississippi allowed Parchment Farm to circumvent the abolition of slavery by substituting a convict leasing system. The 13th Amendment had abolished slavery in all cases except for those in penal servitude and only for those duly convicted. Powerful irony in that term for most all black Americans, rarely well represented and almost never tried by their peers. Another dark truth so well illuminated by the Innocence Project. But the bottom line remains, using the convoluted Mississippi state legislation of a convict leasing system, they were and are, to this day, able to maintain a slave state within the 18,000 acres of Parchment Farm. So for prisoners at Parchment Farm, post-abolition, lives went from bad to still worse. And there was Alan Lomax chronicling their lives in interviews and recording their work songs on his portable MagnaCord tape machine in the mid-20th century. The first practical 
tape recorder, not being invented until 1928. Remembering Fred Douglas's analogy between the power and permanence of pictures and songs, goodness, do we have a wealth of great songs preserved in the Alan Lomax archives and in the Sounds of the South a musical journey from the Georgia Sea Islands to the Mississippi Delta, also by Alan Lomax, but under the Atlantic Records label. And in 2004, all Alan Lomax recordings and those of his father, John A. Lomax, over 10,000 recordings and thousands of pictures were given to the Library of Congress by an anonymous donor. For all time, the Library of Congress owns all the original Alan Lomax recordings. There are no copyright or intellectual property rights to these recordings. They are in the public domain. What a gift to the nation. Still more songs were later recorded based on the voluminous Slave Songs of the United States Anthology, published in 1867. The tape recorder not yet invented, each of those songs were transcribed by hand, the many editors devoting their lives listening then transcribing them straight from the lips of the slaves as they traveled from plantation to plantation in the 18th and 19th century. 189 slave songs and the editors were humbled, knowing they had only scratched the surface, but that massive undertaking ended in 1865 with the abolition of slavery, and they published their work two years later. As with the first episode, Herein I will share but a few minutes of this one chosen slave song, but please try to imagine slaves in the proverbial cotton fields, though here they are a slave crew, hoeing rows on parchment farm, song as balm to their tortured souls, sung for hours on end, their only instrumental accompaniment, their hoes beating the earth. There were many songs born of slavery, three groups well recognized, religious songs, recreational songs, and as with this one, a work song. Back on the plantation, slaves dramatically outnumbered the sadistic slavers who owned them, always in fear of their escape or rebellion. The overseer, try and imagine him on a horse, rifle in hand, unnerved when the slaves went quiet, fearful that plots of revolt were being whispered, so he would yell, make noise, and a work song would ring out through the fields, and what a powerful noise they made. Songs that soothed their souls and lightened their burden. It was also how the slaves communicated in the fields in a way only they understood, some of which did communicate plans for escape or revolt. Songs like 
steal away, and wade in the water, most all had layers of double meaning for the slaves who sang them. The songs often reflected their faith that one day they would steal away to Jesus, but they also reflected a code not recognizable to the vigilant overseer, code well understood by their fellow slaves across the field, that an escape was being planned and they would literally steal away that night via the secret network of the Underground Railroad wherein they might reach the North and freedom. These were sophisticated communication channels. Double meaning abounded, like he calls me by the thunder, to reference that it would be safer to steal away during a storm so that the rain and thunder would make it all the more difficult for the trackers and their dogs to catch them. The lyrics of this song, I be so glad when the sun goes down, repeatedly expresses the sheer relief that comes when the sun goes down. Work had to stop, and they had a fleeting opportunity to just rest. I ain't all that sleepy but I want to lie down. Communication in song between slaves and later between slave prisoners on the parchment farm was the string that held them together, reminding them who they were and that they were not alone. Prisoners of fate, generation after generation, these songs were never written down, though later transcribed. In their time, they were improvised by the caller routinely. What a treasure Lomax and the others have preserved, and which demand that we listen. For our own sake, we must listen. So raw, yet the work song captures so much. Generations of slaves dehumanized, imprisoned in an underlying sorrow and loss of identity. The rhythm is slow, the call and answer structure to me hypnotic, befitting the monotony of their toil. Rhythmic sorrow and beauty, so beaten and horrific were the lives that spawned it. These songs are the true roots of gospel, soul, and the blues. Another of the many enduring legacies of an era of unimaginable inhumanity, and that legacy lives on. Racism still alive, both openly and quietly destructive, our very humanity still under threat. I'm Michael Klein. Thank you for joining me today, and I hope you'll join me again for this continuing series. For now, I'm signing off from Radio Free Earth with a very personal note. I'm 75 years old, and while researching this series, I came across those 15 daguerreotypes, and I was stopped cold, staring with disgust at the naked photos of the also 75-year-old Papa Renty, all propped up, fixed in position, 
like a zoological specimen as Agassiz intended. The whole scene, coerced, obscene, and pornographic, it left me nauseated. From that moment forward, Papa Renty has been with me, alive again, honored, even celebrated through my every angry word spoken here. We carry the sins of our fathers, so I do feel a deep responsibility and shame, all the while knowing that I, living a life of white skin privilege, could never be as brave, as resilient, or as dignified as Papa Renty. I'll also offer renewed appreciation for Frederick Douglass and grateful thanks to Perul Segal, Alan Lomax, the Alan Lomax Archive that has reproduced many of his recordings in a podcast titled Been All Around This World, and to all those who previously contributed to transcribing and compiling Slave Songs of the United States Anthology, and of course to the team at Atlantic Records for Sounds of the South, a musical journey from the Georgia Sea Islands to the Mississippi Delta, featuring many great artists recorded by Alan Lomax. Finally, what you all have been waiting for, Ed Lewis and fellow prisoners in their Parchment Farm rendition, also recorded by Alan Lomax, I Be So Glad When the Sun Goes Down. Free at last. Take it away, Ed. I'll be so glad when uh, the sun goes down. When the sun goes down. I'll be so glad when the sun goes down. When the sun goes down. I don't leave it, but uh-huh. I don't want to lie down. Just don't want to lie down. I don't leave it, but uh-huh. I Free. Yeah. Yeah.